0: Black Lives Matter. It's more than a catchy phrase or slogan that naturally appeals to the one thing we all have a right to as human beings, our dignity. Given the layers of meaning behind it, meaning tied to a movement and its ideology, wisdom compels us to understand the basic premise behind the movement. If we wish to tackle real problems With intelligent compassion. Join Ishmael as he explores the Black Lives Matter movement and its end goal. You're listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast.
1: I want to give a warm welcome to all of you to this new episode of our podcast. As always, we are trying to discuss matters that are of importance. Who have not heard yet of Black Lives Matter? It's a phrase, it's a movement, it's a slogan that is everywhere. And there seems to be this avalanche of, of attention towards a movement that just a few years ago probably didn't mean anything to most of us. Should we join the frenzy of the Black Lives Movement? Should we utilize the slogan? These are important but difficult questions. One reason for being difficult is that a response one way or the other has consequences. Slogans are types of what is called a synodogue. I know that that's a fancy word, but bear with me for a moment. Simply put, the synodogue is a form of symbolic representation that focuses on a part of a problem that can be dramatized, often visually, as, for example, a horror story or a story of injustice. The synodogue is useful to organize people because it can generate emotions. Images of people in extreme poverty, for example, can properly place attention on the plight of the poor, but they can also become tools to control the narrative and reduce a problem to one dimension of the problem. We can talk about poverty and oppression, or poverty and justice, or poverty and being compassionate. So by reducing the problem to a simple singular element, we can control the narrative around the issues of poverty or any other issue for which we use this symbolic representation. A narrative has the inherent power of confining our response to a particularly catchy phrase, to a particular image, to a particular ideological purpose. The readily recognizable image in the Black Lives Matter slogan focuses on the humanity of blacks. It is like saying to us that black lives matter too. It not necessarily implies that only black lives matter, although it is possible to direct the image towards that conclusion. So. Those who want to control the narrative will move a synod one way or the other. But in reality, the slogan simply refers to the humanity of blacks, that they are human beings just like other people. No decent person should disagree. We, descendants of African people, matter. We, descendants of people coming from that continent, have dignity. But the synagogue has layers of meaning. Now, what lies behind the catchy phrase beyond the basic, easy-to-understand notion of dignity? That is what we will be discussing today. Black Lives Matter was established as an online platform in 2013 by three radicals. Their names are Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi. Their objective was to incite black rage and galvanize a protest, a movement in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman, you probably remember him, a Hispanic who killed a black Florida teenager named Trayvon Martin in a very highly publicized incident. But what is important about the concept of a movement and this movement in particular? Movements galvanize action. Action is of the essence. We have to do something. We have to mobilize toward a goal. They tend to offer us clarity. This is the problem. These are the culprits. And this is what we must do. When a movement is based on the proposition that society, the society where you live, was created for the purpose of supporting only one race, and oppressing all other races, you will not defend that society. When your vision says that not only was this nation intrinsically racist from the very beginning, from its inception, but it perpetuates that system covertly through systematic racism, you will not be open to discussion or debate, but to action. We need to change that society radically or destroy that society and replace it with another. That is what lies behind the catchy phrase. That is the Black Lives Matter basic and foundational premise. This new orthodoxy, with its moral clarity about the root causes of our problems, about the root of the racial problem we confront, only admits imposing a new world, a new world without racial oppression. That push is powerful and many people are making a trade-off calculation. Do I join the wave based on that first image of dignity and make that trade-off calculation or I get smashed by resisting? It is not difficult to see that the first alternative is being preferred by many people. The point of least resistance. I want to believe that Black Lives Matter movement is only about racial justice. I will look the other way to any other message. I will denounce those who believe that there is or maybe another message behind the catchy phrase or I simply will not believe that there is any other Message. And many people are preferring this path of least resistance. This includes individuals, foundations, corporations, civil society groups, many churches, civic leaders, religious leaders, and many other entities and individuals. The greater they become, the greater the push toward forcing conformity to that synodox, conformity to the catchy phrase. What is the political ideology of the movement becomes secondary or completely unimportant to many people. I, however, believe that it is crucial that we take a look at the ideology behind a movement because Ideology is embedded in the image that we are being given, and it will affect us. It does affect us individually and as a society. Let's talk briefly about ideologies. There is no doubt that terms such as socialist, communist, progressive, liberal, and Marxist are misused and conflated. People use these terms interchangeably all the time. When in reality, there are distinctions, real distinctions between these terms. Take, for example, the term liberal. I consider myself a classical liberal, at times, unfortunately, also called neoliberal. However, my liberalism is radically at odds with the type of political platform and philosophy of those often associated with liberals or the left modern liberals modern liberals often call themselves progressives but progressivism is a much more radical view of society than both the modern and the classical understanding of liberalism there is also a difference between being a marxist and assuming or accepting important aspects of the marxist ideology Many people implicitly accept the basic premises and foundations of the Marxist narrative of history and the Marxist narrative of social change without even ever studying Marx. They have no idea that they have been influenced by an ideology like Marxism or any other ideology, even though that is happening. Ideologies are articulated expressions of ideas. But those articulated expressions of ideas have unarticulated basic premises, what we can call a worldview that sustains those premises. Many people who don't necessarily see themselves as Marxist, adhere to the basic premises of struggle as the Marxists understand these premises. They assume the Marxist foundational understanding of social advancement without knowing that it is Marxist. Or they know it comes from Marxism, but they accept it anyway by attempting to sever it from its roots. Complicating this situation is the fact that Marxist-inspired movements seldom use the term socialist, communist, or Marxist in the way they explain themselves in their self-descriptions. It was Vladimir Lenin, the one who initiated this tactic of aligning themselves with like-minded people or with like-minded movements that were not formally affiliated with the Communist Party. He called these people or these movements fellow travelers. In his work, What Is To Be Done?, Lenin proposed such types of alignments in view of the party being illegal in Russia. So these fellow travelers constituted a network of organizations, not overtly communist, that worked together as a front. Since then, fronts have been used often by Marxist-Leninists all over the world, aligning themselves with other organizations or creating themselves organizations for other causes. The best-known front for me is the Sandinista Nicaraguan Front, the Frente Farabundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional. One of these days I will give you my personal story, but I was on my way to Sandinista Nicaragua and I wanted to be a member of this communist front. But there are many fronts all over the world, and here in the United States, especially among minorities. We can say that a Marxist-Leninist-inspired front is like pornography. Hard to define, but you know it when you see it. At times, these fronts create numerous organizations with very narrow, specific goals which can be embraced by numerous people who are not themselves even interested in politics. These networks fight for the rights of workers, for the rights of people in different professions, for better conditions for people, and all kinds of other uh, causes. Now, there are other movements and organizations that are infiltrated by communists. And it is more difficult to determine as the organization itself was not formed as a front. And moreover, many times you have all kinds, dozens, hundreds of organizations that consist only on a website and a few people. But they want to see themselves as being numerous and powerful. Moreover, certain trends such as revolutionary, social justice, human rights, the struggle, and liberation give one a hint that an organization may be part of a front. In fact, the term liberation is quite useful in identifying the nature of a given campaign. So look for that term. They use that term very often, the same as with the term the struggle. It does not necessarily mean that an organization that uses these terms is a front, a communist front, but it is a good hint in helping us identify that a given movement isn't in that track of identifying it as Marxist or as anarchist. But why anarchist? Let's engage this term for a moment because I think it will give us a little bit of information about the nature of the Black Lives Matter in the context of Marxist fronts, leftist anarchism sees the criminal as the most enlightened sector of the proletariat. In Marxism, they were called lumpen proletariat. This term identified the slum workers or the mob, a class of the outcast that the de- degenerated and submerged elements of society to make up a section of the population of industrial centers. During the Industrial Revolution, these were the people who lived at the the margins of society, and the anarchists believed that these men and women are the ones who have class consciousness. This subset of the workers, or the proletariat, included the drunks, drug addicts, drug dealers, the beggars, the prostitutes, gangsters, racketeers, swindlers, petty criminals, the chronically unemployed, the unemployable, all the discarded elements of society excreted by the forces of capital, those who have been cast out by industry and all sorts of declass, degraded, or degenerated elements of society. Karl Marx coined the term in his book, The German Ideology. By the early 18th century in Germany, the word lumpen began to have a pejorative uh, meaning to it. And the term was used later in the Communist Manifesto, where it is translated as the Dangerous Classes. Marx never spoke well of the lumpen proletariat. He thought that they lacked revolutionary capacities. They could not efface the revolution. And they had to be absorbed by the higher segments of the proletariat or they should be eliminated. Marx did not have a good thing to say about them, calling them social scum in his communist manifesto they were really problematic. They were not only disinclined to participate in revolutionary activities, but they were also unwilling to join their rightful brethren, the proletariat, and could be bribed or extorted by the capitalist class. In the manifesto, he and Engels pictures them as depraved, as a passive decaying matter of the lowest layers of society. Not so for the communist Russian anarchists. One of my favorite anarchists was Bakunin, and he accused Marx and Engels of blaming the victim. Sounds familiar? I remember, as a Marxist, how I used to read Bakunin and Kropotkin constantly because I believed that the proletariat were really the ones who had the greater revolutionary capacities. In fact, for anarchists, the Lumpen proletariat were the left's true constituency, promoting these cast-offs to the role of the popular revolutionary subject. Very importantly, Bakunin, Fanon, and other anarchists saw the Lumpen proletariat as capitalism's greatest victims. Modern Arab anarchists see the plight of blacks in the same light in the same light as the Lumpen proletariat was the was capitalism's greatest victims in Russia. Strategically, their plight is seen as needed to create the chaos which, which will place in focus the larger oppressions of capitalism. And in this way, it is very important to understand this anarchist conception of the greatest victim of capitalism and how anarchist fronts like Black Lives Matter can capitalize on the plight of those who are seen as the victimized group. There are other victims of capitalism, the LGBT group, the workers, the immigrants, women, and other outcasts in society are seen as those who are not taken care of by capitalism that suffer the greatest under capitalism. Therefore, they have the greatest capacity of effacing the revolution, while the traditional Leninist Marxists may not see it exactly in that light. Black Lives Matter as a movement is a radical front created by three individuals trained and active in Marxist-inspired movements. I really didn't need the video to know that they were part of a front, but they openly admit in a video that they are Marxists and that their movement is a movement of Marxist origin. It is within the framework of the Marxist dialectics of struggle that they see the position of the struggle of race. They see blacks as the greatest victims in a struggle against the capitalist forces active in history. Most people joining the movement are not Marxists. They are simply good people who hate racism. But that is one of the clever and successful elements of communist fronts. They align themselves with a the cause. They target a victim and a victimizer, and then they mobilize the anger and the rightful desire of people to seek justice, and they channel those energies towards their ultimate goals, that is, the destruction of the capitalist system. One of the founders of Black Lives Matters, Opal Tometi, is a big supporter of the communist regime of Venezuela, a regime with hundreds of political prisoners and whose entire leadership has been indicted for drug trafficking. That regime oppresses its people, uses extrajudicial murders against its opponents, and supports the Castro regime with all the oil they need, while the Venezuelans don't even have gas. Over 5 million people have escaped that country. And Mrs. Tomei is a great supporter of the Venezuelan regime, the Cuban regime, and is on video admitting that she is a trained Marxist and that her movement is a Marxist-inspired movement. This is so important, my friends. Are we as Christians going to align ourselves with movements that use us, that use our sense of justice and our our desire to help and support those in need, our anger or our outrage at events that we find to be unjust and unfair, to channel those good aspirations toward goals and ideologies that are antithetical Our principles and our convictions, we need to be very careful in being swayed by a movement that seems to be popular at a given moment. When one signs on a movement, one is signing to all its presuppositions, even if those presuppositions are not apparent to you. This is why emotional attachments to generalized goals are not helpful when one commits to a movement. When one, due to an incident, signs up on a movement, one is granting power and one is losing power to contain what one helped unleash. Beware of movements because they try to instrumentalize your good intentions towards goals, that you would have never signed for if you would have known about it. The Black Lives Matter movement is that type of front that instrumentalizes a given event or situation for goals that we have to reject. Affirm that Blacks matter. Black people do matter. Black lives do matter the lives of people matter. Love each other, love everyone, serve and serve more. Dedicate your life to do what is good, what is holy, what is wholesome, but do not get caught in movements, especially Marxist fronts. Alicia Garza, is another of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and she describes herself as a queer social justice revolutionary. In her essay, Her Story of the Black Lives Matter Movement, she states that the movement is ideological and political. She also adds that she doesn't have a problem with others using the slogan or the movement for other goals as long as they recognize the inherent ideological and political essence of the movement. Anyone trying to use it should recognize its origins and its purpose. When you search for Garza's ideology, it goes directly into Marxist-inspired activism. She remains in the board of directors of a radical school in California, the School of Unity and Liberation. I ask you to check them out, which trains young people to become socialist organizers. For example, in one of their curriculum training manuals, I found an exercise where they uh, split uh, young people into small groups and they had to identify the different kinds of oppressions they may experience and how one oppression relates to another oppression. An example is the relationship between capitalism and white supremacy, based on the capitalist drive to super exploit people of color. Remember what we said about the anarchist insistence on those who are the greatest victims of capitalism? Another example is the relationship between white supremacy and patriarchy, and it is that women of color are held to racist beauty standards and taught to hate their bodies. They give some minutes, they discuss, and they say it becomes very emotional. This is the kind of training they offer, where they tie capitalism to white supremacy, to patriarchy as oppressive. Sometimes the oppression is Christianity itself. They have a manual on the evils of neoliberalism, read capitalism. So Black Lives Matter as a movement is not a reformist Movement. It is a revolutionary movement. Its entire leadership is one of leftist revolutionaries. The movement is first anti-Western civilization and its foundations on questions of sexuality, morality, family, and the very understanding of reality are anti-Western. Then, Black Lives Matter is anti-capitalist. As racism is but one of the many expressions of oppression inherent within the economic system of capital. It is not a reformist movement, my friends. If you want to reform and change things for the better, for justice, please do not join the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter. But the Black Lives Matter movement should not matter to you. Revolutionaries might call for reforms only instrumentally. That is, reforms might help them advance to their ultimate goal, but reform is not what they aspire to, as reform implies that the present system can work by making improvements and they believe that the problem is the present system itself. The revolutionary sees the problem in the system and reforms only as adaptations of the same patterns of oppression, which remain intact. The conflation of narrative with anecdote triggered by an actual event can be explosive, and does not lead us to greater understanding if we join with radical movements. People are protesting, and to some extent, the protest can serve a positive cause. And I welcome people who protest, welcome people who want to see changes in the way certain things are. I welcome to examine each situation and each reform in their proper context, not to simply buy for, for sweeping changes because we need things to be different or because some people tell us that we need to defund police or do some radical change in our way of life. However, protests engulfed by a given narrative need to be analyzed in view of that narrative, not merely accepted as if they convey the full scope of a problem or can be integrated within one's own worldview. If we simply accept narratives like, for example, the narrative of ta Nehesi Coates, the writer for The Atlantic, the Minnesota incident is simply archetypical of an America where Whites are literally oppressive of Blacks. Whites are on a hunting spree, intent on, as he says in his now famous The World and Me, the shackling and destruction of Black bodies. It happens, if we follow his logic, that White vigilantism is a common experience, as some other authors also insist upon. We are being told that, Blacks are being uh, killed in great numbers and their their very lives are being threatened. Now, how can that narrative explain the fact that white-on-black homicides are rare as compared to black-on-white homicides? If 60% of whites with power in a systematically oppressive and racist society where they are the oppressors and we are the victims are more often the victims of the victims, who are only 13% of the population, how is that aligned with the narrative? Could it be that the narrative is false and our present problems need a different explanation? According to data from the National Crime Victimization, in 2012, blacks committed 85% of all interracial crimes in America, There were 560,000 plus acts of violence against whites, and whites committed 99,000 plus acts of violence against blacks. Violence is violence, regardless of ethnicity, and we should strive to end violence. But how can it be if the narrative is correct Whites are unfortunately victims of bad policing too, and often at higher rates than blacks. If we want to have a discussion on policing in general, let's have that discussion. But the introduction of race is the introduction of the concept of victimization, of the lumpen proletariat among us, that is us, people of color. But going back to white victimization, the view in the country now is as if cases of police misconduct only or mostly occur against blacks. That is simply not true. If we need police reform in various places, and we do, it's not due to racism, but to bad policing. Could that be a way to look at the problem? Could that be a reality in certain areas of the country while in other areas we need to look at race as a real factor in understanding why things are not where they should be? Or do we need to have this sweeping generalization that race and racism is engulfing the nation because the nation is intrinsically racist from the very beginning of its inception and that Racism is perpetuated institutionally and culturally in a way that sometimes we don't even realize, but it's there, and we had to completely transform and change our society along the lines of what Black Lives Matter aspires, Marxist understandings of society. The truistic belief that we are now living through an epidemic of racially biased policing is a creation of ideology using selective reporting. In 2015, a National Academy of Sciences study found among the white victims of fatal police shootings a 50-year-old suspect in a domestic assault in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who ran at the officer with a spoon a 20-year-old driver in Des Moines, Iowa, who exited his car but walked too quickly toward an officer, and a 20-year-old suspect in a grocery store robbery in Ohio who escaped on a bike but did not remove his hands from his waistband when ordered to do quickly enough. It does happen, but have you heard of the names of these people? Of these cases, it is as if they never existed. If any of these unarmed white victims had been black, the media and the Black Lives Matter activists would have blamed racism as the absolute cause for the shootings. But they happen to be white, so they are unnamed, unknown, not deserving a hearing as they do not fit the narrative love everyone serve the poor the lonely the downtrodden stand for mercy justice and truth serve and serve even more but please do not join politicize and racialize destructive movements as you will become an accomplice to evil forces if we insist on narratives of victimization, we will tear this nation apart. That is not what we need. It is unnecessary. There is a better way. False theories of victimization engender contrary false theories of victimization. What if whites begin to blame Black Lives Matter movement for influencing the bad behavior on cases, for example, of the four individuals in Chicago who for four hours tortured a disabled white man in 2017 while yelling, F white people, F Donald Trump. These incidents have many layers of antecedent influences. And to simply box them within the narrowed narratives of victimization will lead us into disaster. It is primarily in the hands of those with a public voice to reject these false narratives. I believe in equality. those who are strong are not superior to the weak. the older are not superior to the young. The smarted are not superior to the simple, the able are not superior to the disabled, the born are not superior to the unborn, the black is not superior to the white, the white is not superior to the black. Of course, in certain respects we make distinctions and have relative differences. Those with superior intelligence, for example, are often granted degrees in complicated matters and those those with less intelligence might not get them. A healthy athletic and younger man might get a spot in an NFL team, while a weak, infirm octogenarian won't. But those distinctions are not made on the basis of possessing greater intrinsic dignity. It is only in the understanding of the commonality of human dignity that we will find solutions to the problems of race in America. It is not by adhering to false, radical ideologies. We are members of human communities. We are members of communities we call families into constructs of larger communities we call societies, That is, we are connected to various networks of social mutuality. We are connected without ever losing our individuality, but without isolating ourselves from the whole. In that network of connectedness, we have duties and responsibilities toward each other, especially towards the weakest, especially towards those who suffer injustice. I affirm all those principles, but do not join false movements. This new orthodoxy on race that is engulfing our nation with its moral clarity about the roots of the problem only admits to impose this new world on all of us. That is why there is so strong a push toward ideological conformity. That push is powerful and many people are making a trade-off calculation. Do I join the wave and not get smashed, or do I resist? It is not difficult to see that the first alternative is being preferred by many. The point of least resistance. This includes individuals, corporations, foundations, civil society groups, churches, leaders, and many other entities. The greater they become, the greater the push and the pressure toward forcing conformity. Some of us choose to resist because one who betrays conscience is already smashed.
0: Thank you for listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Now, learn more about the Freedom and Virtue Institute by visiting www.fvinstitute.org. Ishmael is also the author of the book, Not Tragically Colored. You can connect with him on the Freedom and Virtue Institute Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive review. Thanks. Until next time, stay engaged.
1: I was thinking this was the way to go, and you put up your puppet show. I
0: say cheers